Welcome to Exaltation. This is Father David Masterson bringing you the beautiful, the good, and the true. Scripture today is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part brought an offering of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So far in the book of Genesis, we have seen God making a very good beginning in chapter 1 and 2. God himself is ultimate goodness and all that he has made is intrinsically good. Then an abnormality entered into that very good creation in chapter 3. Sin infected man's whole being and brought suffering and death into the created order. Now in chapter 4, we encounter the story of Cain and Abel, and the focus of this chapter is on acceptable and unacceptable worship. In Genesis, we will find that the Bible doesn't always fill in every detail of what it is trying to teach us. We know that Abel had some knowledge of what was acceptable sacrifice to God, but the scriptures don't tell us how God told Abel this information. What becomes of a society that refuses to worship the true and living God? Genesis chapter 4 describes the outlines of that society. In this chapter are traced two lines, two genealogies, that of the ungodly line of Cain and his ancestry and the godly line of Abel and his ancestry. Every man stands either in the line of Cain or Abel. We are either for the Lord Jesus Christ or we are against him. In which line do you stand, dear listening friend? Let's see how the godly and ungodly lines develop. Verse 1 says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Cain means gotten or ownership, and the idea is that Eve bore a son by the grace of God. It is possible that Eve thought to herself, 
maybe this child is the one who will bring us out of the trouble we have gotten ourselves into when we sinned against God. We will never know for sure, but Eve had the promise of Genesis 3.15 that from her seed would come the promised deliverer. Sadly, Cain was not a savior, but a rebel against God. He was born naturally and brought forth the natural results of the fallen human race. What a wonderful contrast is the Virgin Mary in the New Testament called the Second Eve. She said yes to the angel of the Lord. Just as the first Eve brought forth an evil son, Cain, so the second Eve surrendered her body for a miraculous birth and brought forth a good and perfect son, the Savior of the world. We next read that Abel was born after Cain, Cain took up farming while Abel became a shepherd. In the course of time, Cain brings an offering to the Lord. God rejects Cain's offering but accepts Abel's offering. Why is this? We know that worship is based on sacrifice, for animal sacrifice has been universally prevalent in all nations and people groups down through history. God, from the very beginning, prescribed correct worship as a test of man's obedience to him. We also know from Leviticus 9.24 and Judges 6.21 that God sent fire from heaven to consume acceptable offerings. It is likely that God showed his pleasure at Abel's offering by consuming it with fire, but left Cain's offering untouched. God did not consider Cain's offering because his heart was wicked. Cain did not have faith in God. Cain was the first worldly person mentioned in the Bible, the one who loved this world as his home and not the eternal city of God. There is a saying, as is the man, so is his worship. Worship is not something we do on Sundays. Worship is the totality of our life, seeking to give God adoration and praise. We worship God every day, all through the day, by our motivations, our thoughts, and our actions. We worship God corporately as the church gathered on Sunday morning. Then look at verse 5. And Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Anger is one of man's most powerful emotions, and it must be kept under the control of the Holy Spirit. I have counseled with couples where the husband battered the wife and both of them claimed to be Christians. The husband said he was just so angry that he lost control and beat up his wife. The early church fathers say that the beginning of prayer is to combat anger, lust, and pride. They teach that until we combat anger, lust, and pride, we cannot make any progress in true prayer. This is because the passions are the real enemies of prayer. They destroy the space in the heart where true prayer may grow. Cain was angry and despondent. He was angry with God for not recognizing his offering, and he was angry with Abel for being favored instead of him. So Cain adds to the sin of anger the sin of envy. He was annoyed that his younger brother's gift had been accepted and not his. Cain was so angry that he could not be talked out of his sin even by God himself. Look at verse 6. 
God says to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? It is as though God is saying, instead of being filled with anger, you ought to be filled with distress over your sins. Instead of being downcast and gloomy, you ought to be shedding tears of repentance for disobeying my instructions for right sacrifice. If you do well, your offering will be accepted. Cain still has the possibility of turning away from false worship to offer God acceptable worship. He has the opportunity to repent of his sin and come back into fellowship with God. God gave Cain the chance to right his wrong and try again. But Cain refused, and the rest of his life is the result of this refusal to repent and do right. Verse 7 has a whole ocean of meaning and significance in just 32 little words. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you but you must master it. This verse describes what happens after and because of wrongdoing. Everything hinges on the little phrase, if you do well. The idea here is that sin is crouching like a wild animal at the door of Cain's mind and heart. He has already committed the sin of anger and envy. These sins will quickly lead to the greater sin of murder if they are left unchecked. Remember that sin has an avalanche effect. The little sin starts at the top of the mountain and rolls down, and as it descends, it grows greater and greater until it produces huge consequences near the bottom of the mountain. Sin desires to seduce, conquer, and destroy us. We must stand and fight against it, or it will seize us and defeat us. Alexander McLaren was Scotland's most distinguished preacher in the 19th century and is regarded as one of the greatest preachers that have ever lived. He finds a deeper meaning in verse 7 and says, Think of the wild beast which we tether to our doors by our wrongdoing. We are all deceived by the thought that when once we do an evil deed, it is done away and passes away and leaves no permanent result. The solemn truth is that every evil thought, word, or act has a permanent being which haunts the life of the doer as a real presence. If you do not do well, you create a horrible something which nestles beside you henceforward. In modern language, this means that every sin a man does has perennial consequences which abide with the doer forevermore. We drink as we have brewed, as we make our beds, so we lie in them. There is no escape from the law of consequences. Your deed of a moment forgotten as soon as it is done lies there at the door. It is debited to your account and stands inscribed against you forever. These are sobering words, dear friends, meriting our reflection.
You are listening to Exaltation. I'm Father David Masterson, bringing you the beautiful, the good, and the true, heralding the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we may experience life in Him. Let's continue our lesson. The text says, Its desire is for you. Sin has an awful power of attracting the heart of man towards it and making him do the same sin over and over again. But God says, You must rule over it. The solution to sin is not medications or attending endless AA groups or support groups and admitting that I am addicted to something. Support groups are helpful because they predispose the heart of a man towards humility, towards admitting that he has a problem. He must be broken to admit that he is struggling with alcohol or sexual addiction or other problems. But the solution is not in admitting the problem. That's a good first step, but not the cure. The great physician, the Lord Jesus, must be brought in to provide the cure. If the church has nothing more to say to the world than sin is lying at your door, but you must rule over it yourself, then we have no gospel to proclaim. Sin's power and dominion remain firmly entrenched over men. You can't go to a drunken man lying in the gutter of San Francisco and tell him to get up, make yourself clean, stop drinking, and keep yourself pure. It is impossible. He needs the power of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the little phrase, you must rule over it, is a clear pointing to the blessing of the gospel. Jesus, God's Son, came down from heaven as a great physician to overcome our passions and give us healing from the wounds of our sin. Sin is very strong. It will kill us if we let it. But the Lord Jesus Christ is stronger still. He will strengthen us to conquer sin and overcome it by his power. If we trust him, the Lord Jesus will deliver us from the burden, the guilt, and the power of sin. Our will can be ruled by the Holy Spirit so that we are brought out from underneath the power and bondage of sin into the freedom of holiness. What we must see is that God is giving Cain a second chance. He is saying to Cain, you can go back and do what you should have done in the first place. Give me the acceptable offering as I directed and you will stop the sin process within you. Now, watch how Cain's sin develops in verses 8 to 10. Under the guise of going for a friendly walk in the fields with his brother, Cain sets up an opportunity to do the evil deed lying in his heart. Why did Cain commit fratricide? He preferred himself to God, and he gave place to evil thoughts in his mind. We must all remember, dear friends, that all sin is committed first in our thoughts. Stop sin at the level of the thoughts, and you will keep sin from expressing itself at the level of actions. 
2 Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is the key, dear friends, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, by the time we get to the end of verse 8, we discover that Cain has committed not one, but six sins. Pride, disobedience to God's command about offerings, envy of his brother Abel, hatred of his brother, murder of his brother, and now lying to God. There is a progression to sin. Pride leads to disobedience, which leads to envy, which leads to hatred, which leads to murder, which leads to lying. So God asks Cain a question to win him back to the path of righteousness. Where is Abel your brother? He asks the question in order to get Cain to admit his sin and lead him to repentance. But Cain is defiant and hardens himself against God's grace. His sarcastic reply to God is a play on the word keeper in verse 2. Just as Abel, his brother, was a keeper of sheep, so Cain says, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? It is instructive to see that the first sin in the Bible is against God and the second sin is against both God and man. When we turn away from God and break that vertical relationship, the result is that we break the horizontal relationship. We will soon murder one another. But God cannot allow innocent blood to be shed without punishment. The wicked may rage upon the earth, but the sufferings which the godly men endure cry out for vengeance in the presence of God. All evil people and bad governments and dictators will be punished for their evil deeds. One early church father says, Cain shares the opinion held by many today that God pays no attention to worldly affairs, neither does he see the things done by wicked men. Cain believed that his most deadly crime could be covered by a lie. But it turned out otherwise, didn't it? He realized that God had seen him. And we know from the book of Hebrews that God sees everything and everyone all the time. In verse 11 to 15, God gives Cain his punishment. St. John Chrysostom, the early church father, says the punishment God gave Cain seems excessively harsh, but rightly understood, it is a glimpse of his great mercy. If God had immediately destroyed Cain, Cain would have disappeared. His sin would have stayed concealed and he would have remained unknown to men of later times. But the sight of Cain served to teach all men and exhort them never to dare to do what he had done so that they might not suffer the same punishment. Cain was kept from leaping again into any other similar deed of folly as he was constantly reminded of his former crime. There is a real loving kindness and mercy in God's treatment of Cain. Instead of killing him outright, he gave Cain a twofold punishment. 
first as the ground was cursed because of Adam, so now it is more severely cursed because of Cain. When Cain seeks to cultivate the soil, it will not yield its fruit for him. Second, Cain must be a vagabond and a fugitive for the rest of his life. What this means is that everywhere Cain goes, he will have a restless and unsettled mind. He will never be at peace with himself or others. One of God's greatest gifts to man is quietness and tranquility of mind. Even though the righteous must sometimes wander about in the earth, yet wherever they go, the Spirit of God gives them the gift of peace and rest. Not so for Cain. The ungodly have anxiety, fearfulness, and lack of peace. Wherever they live, their inner mind and heart are unsatisfied and in turmoil. Cain cries out to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Notice that Cain doesn't repent of his sin. His heart is still hardened. He doesn't cry out to God to save him. He simply laments his punishment. So God graciously gives Cain a mark so that his life will be preserved. This is done for two reasons, as a sign of God's grace towards Cain and as an example to others of the severe consequences of Cain's sin. Cain was forever restless and unsettled throughout the rest of his life. From verse 16 to the end of the chapter, we see a picture of the ungodly line of Cain. Cain and his progeny are the beginnings of an affluent society defying God and his laws and seeking pleasure and self-indulgence. Cain and his descendants are the authors of technique. They produce musical instruments, crafts, farming equipment, animal breeding, and metalwork. Now, while none of these things in and of themselves are sinful, the way they are used can be sinful and terribly damaging both to man himself and to the creation. From the line of Cain has come an emphasis on city building and a dependence upon technology as a means of exerting power and control. This is where technology goes astray and leads to idolatry. What we have today in 2021 is the control of the world by technocrats and globalists who are misusing technology to depopulate the earth and bring in their own version of building back better. Microchipping, human-computer hybrids, artificial intelligence, and genetic alteration of human DNA are all aspects of a godless agenda being advanced by Silicon Valley experts. Sadly, what underlies all these efforts is great technical proficiency coupled with deep moral and spiritual failure. Jesus said, What does it matter if a man gains the whole world, yet loses his own soul? So from the time of Cain forward, we have two humanities. The one humanity rejects the true and living God, makes gods of technology and science, and gives God false, merely ritualistic worship. The other humanity adores the true and living God, repudiates godless technology, and worships in spirit and in truth, offering to God right worship according to his instructions. There is no neutral ground. By the time we get to Seth and his son Enosh, 
hundreds of years have gone by. The word Enosh means miserable man, denoting the great wickedness and wretchedness of this generation of humanity. Humanity had descended deeper and deeper into wickedness and disobedience. When the world was greatly in sin, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. God's grace drew the hearts of men to himself, and they began to call upon him. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Listening friend, have you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior and Master? One closing thought about godless technology. Thomas Whitelaw, 1840-1917, was a Scottish minister and biblical scholar who lived during a time of great technological expansion. He says, The only safety for the people of God, especially in a time of great technological and scientific emphasis, is to make deep and wide the line of distinction between them and the world and to steadfastly maintain public as well as private worship. If his words were important over a hundred years ago, how much more vital are they today? Many thinkers believe that we are at a critical juncture, a turning point in the future of humanity. People are being manipulated by big tech in ways that are quickly eroding our basic human freedoms. Big Tech now knows your location, who you work for, who your friends are, when you're walking your dog, whether you go to church, when you're standing in line to vote, and on and on. They have the ability to detect and monitor whole groups of people and to shut down a story on the internet they don't like before it attracts too much attention. Remember that even presidents and people of distinction and doctors and scientists are being banned by Twitter, Facebook, Google, and every other social media platform. If big tech's capabilities are allowed to develop unregulated, these companies will have the power not only to suppress any political movement they don't like, but to prevent alternative movements from developing. This would mean the end of democracy and freedom in the Western world as we know it. Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ march to a different drummer. We must not follow the path of big tech's control and manipulation for it is godless and worldly. We must heed Thomas Whitelaw's advice and separate ourselves from this fallen world to focus our attention on obeying God and giving him the worship and adoration he deserves. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. Amen. You've been listening to the program Exaltation. I'm Father David Masterson with Godet Ministries. You may reach us on the web at godetministries.org. That's G-A-U-D-E-T-E ministries.org. This gospel outreach is entirely listener-supported. 
please help us proclaim the gospel on the radio to a needy world. You may donate online at our website. Your gift, large or small, is gratefully appreciated. Until next time, may God richly bless you with this word of encouragement from the prophet Isaiah. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not faint.